welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Today, Jacob will bring us something surprisingly traditional in pop and culture. Actually, yes. Stop it. We are on the same wavelength. We are going back to triangles. We are going back to triangles. It's amazing. It's amazing. Mercy, I thought of that and was like, there's no way that one's going to be an accurate description. I just have to work harder. Then in the academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, You Aren't As Close to My Family As You Think, Discordant Perceptions About In-Laws and the Risk of Divorce. And then in good or bad advice, we're going to discuss advice for how to know your parenting well. Too often, parenting advice I find focuses on what we are doing wrong. And I was in the mood to focus on what we are doing well, needed some of that positivity. If you have advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us at attachedpodcast, or just go straight to our website, attachedpodcast.com. Send us a message, peruse the stuff that we have there. Such a fantastic and informative website, some say. Also, we're now on YouTube, so please smash that YouTube subscribe button, the same or similar subscribe button in your favorite podcast app to subscribe to this podcast. And remember, rate and review us if you like it. If don't, that's fine. We appreciate you listening. But before we get to all of that, how are you all doing? Tell me stories. I miss you. For our YouTube listeners, listeners, our YouTube watchers, I think our YouTube watchers, I just Yours? want to first express my profound disappointment that uh, okay. Sarah Woods did not dress like you and I today, Patricia. <laughs> I mean, oh. we are basically wearing the exact same thing for those watching on YouTube, and Sarah didn't even, didn't get on the same way. Like this chunky sweater on. Yeah, oh, but not the, the beige oh. cardigan with the blue V-neck. No, yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, sorry guys. <laughs> actually, we're doing really well because we finally have had some nice weather in Iowa. Yay. So the first time in Iowa, we're starting to have decent weather and we haven't seen our friends in forever. And we have a really long driveway. So oh. we invited all our friends over and we all brought like lawn chairs and we all sat Aww. six feet apart and we just spent the afternoon chatting, Aww. catching up. It was so needed. You forget how lovely. much you need actual like face-to-face contact other than your, your partner and children. <laughs> I mean, That's I love awesome. my partner and children and they love me, I think, but they, they also need other people in their lives. <laughs> Did you say children? I was definitely waiting for clarification. Oh, wait. <laughs> I mean, child. So I was like, are you referring to your cats? Out. I mean, they're kind of our children. Sure. <laughs> and they're sick of us too. Our cat, Louie, with everybody in the driveway, he jumped up on everybody's lap and wants pets Aww. for everybody but me and Chelsea. He did not pay <laughs> any attention to us. He's like, no, I get to see you all the time. That's yeah, awesome. I'm good. Woods, what's going on in your life? 
Oh, you know, my never ending search for I should probably have a hobby. My daughter decided that she wanted to learn how to do cross stitch. She'd learned (gasps) how to sew in school and loves it so much and had seen me attempting to (laughs) cross stitch, which is a super cool like hip hobby to have. And so we, I started teaching her how to do it. And my daughter's excited. The rest of the people in her life have all simultaneously asked the same question, which is, <laughs> what do you do with that when you're done with it? And meaning my husband asked first, like, oh, that's cool. What do you, like, what do you do with <laughs> like that thing when you're done? And she's like, oh, I, I like, I put it up. I said, yep, that's right. She puts it up. And then my mom said, oh, that's really cool. What do you do with cross-stitch when you're done done with it? And then- Put it on a sweatshirt. Well, yeah. (laughs) I don't know. We're three shirts deep in the last week of cross-stitch. I don't know how many cross-stitch shirts you can have. But then my sister-in-law said, oh, that's really cool. What do you do with it when you're done? And I said, I think we're done with this hobby. So, So lately- we have taken on a new hobby and we have put the hobby away because, <laughs> because it was good to learn. And also I don't want a bunch of completed cross-stitch projects in a bag in a closet. So I mean, maybe you should sell them to. on Etsy. I don't think the quality of what <laughs> either of us are producing. I know, but like, I, I kind of feel like you could have like an Etsy fail site where like really terrible oh, cross-stitch and you could sell those like ironically. Oh, that feels like such a sad waste of my time. <laughs> but I I appreciate the support. I'm just, I'm, I'm just looking out for you. I gotta don't want fund you to give my, up those Fund my thread habit. That's what you're saying. Mm, yeah, yeah, got it. I do love cross-stitching. Remember that time, Sarah Woods, about two years ago, we both discovered that we both cross-stitch after yes. knowing each other for seven years. And we're like, yeah. what? what? We both yes. have this hobby? What? These are the things that happen when your friends don't live in the same town with you. That's right. You miss very, very big chunks of their lives. Crossage is not a big chunk of my life, to be clear. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Me neither. Me neither. It's just a once in a while hobby. It's just just a thing on the side. Nobody supports, barely. So, (laughs) clearly. Keep it I made my husband a cross stitch one time for Christmas and it is hanging oh, yeah? in our living room. Mm. Oh, that's lovely. <sighs> yeah. I mean, I framed it and I gave it to him. Right. And then, he, I mean, you it's not it. like he was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. Let's frame it. <laughs> Let's show everyone. It, it was very much motivated by <laughs> me. I love it. Anyway, <laughs> so we have discovered a new TV show on Netflix. I don't think it originally aired on Netflix. Have you guys heard of the reality show, reality competition show? This is not The Bachelor. Don't get too excited, Jacob. The Floor is Lava. Yes. I've seen a couple episodes. No. Oh, my gosh. The kids love it. Here are the pros and cons of The Floor is Lava. Con, the kids now want to jump on all of the furniture in the living room and play The Floor is Lava. Of course they do. And we're allowing it for now. It is, we're allowing it. Pro, because the floor is lava is like a team competition show where like families get together and they have to teamwork together to get across the floor that is lava. Yeah. My kids are also like teamworking, getting across the floor is lava. It is the cutest thing. My little boy would be like, 
sister, sister. No, he doesn't talk, sound like that. that that's kind of a strange accent. <laughs> what was that? German? Oh, was it German? Is that where you were headed? I don't know. I don't know. It felt very like almost Eastern European to me. Like I kind of got a Feifel goes West feel too. Oh, my accents are horrible. I'm sure you guys know about this, but like I will try to do accents, but it always comes out the, the same way. <laughs> anyway, that's neither here nor there. And he never calls my daughter by her name, just sister. Sister, sister, I'm falling into lava, save me. And she'll oh. run across him, like oh. try to save him. It's absolutely adorable. And though, I've got you, my little German. <laughs> I got you, my little German. Even though, obviously, good house rule is don't jump on furniture. We're allowing it because they're working as a team. I'm like, well, listen, this is <laughs> encouraging pro-social behavior. <laughs> I love so, it. It is a great show. And also, I think it encourages kids to work as teams. Maybe just mine. Who knows? Let us know if your kids uh, like it or not. But I really enjoy it. It's fun. It's been a fun little weekend adventure slash couple weeks. I don't know. I'm sure we'll continue until all of our furniture is broken. I mean, but then you have an excuse to get new stuff. So reframe. Yeah. Nice reframe. Yeah, uh, that's why I like my cats because, like, oh, see that? We want to get a new one of those. Start scratching it. Yeah, good, good <laughs> job. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I'll try to. I'll try to sell that one to my husband. Like, we should let them continue to jump on the furniture so we can buy new furniture. I Look, guarantee. there's lava over there in the kitchen. <laughs> we need a new table. Go get the lava. Oh, lava on a bed. Dishwasher, pull it down and jump on it. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, yeah, all of these things. First up, pop in culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and family. But a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we'd like to take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Jacob, what you got for us? Like I said before, we're going back to the classics. Something we talked quite a bit about on this podcast, triangulation. The idea that when there's conflict between two people, you right. bring in a third person. I really would love for you to develop a song based on triangulation. Mm, I'll oh. work on that. Thank okay. you. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I feel like next time there's an AMFT conference, which is where family therapists go every year, for those who don't aren't familiar, we could do a karaoke version of it. Oh, I don't know if... I was willing to go that far. I was just willing for you to humiliate yourself. Oh, oh okay. I'm not sure if I want to be roped into this as well. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> so have any of you seen the show on Netflix, Behind Her Eyes? Mm, nope. No. Oh, so good. And does it go like this? Behind her eyes. Dun, dun, dun. Wait, no. I thought you said you didn't want to humiliate yourself. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> so fast <laughs> so good oh, i love it so much um, so <laughs> this show illustrates triangulation so well for you know i i supervise students and so part of the t- part of the piece of supervision is talking about like certain you know research like patterns and relationships so we literally had one one chunk of our class period where we all went beforehand and watched behind her eyes and really? came to class and talked about it. Yeah. 
So let me set the premise for you and okay. I'll show you why it is so interesting. So it focuses on Louise, who's divorced single mom who has like an eight-year-old son. And her son is going to stay with his dad for the weekend. So she decides to finally like venture out. She goes to a bar and she meets this really attractive man. They have a couple of drinks. They laugh. They don't know each other's names. They're about to end of the night. They kiss. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, uh oh. And the guy runs away. <gasps> and so Louise is like, well, that's, that was weird. This guy could have actually liked. Now he's running away. Oh my so, gosh, I think I heard about this. Mm-hmm. It's really, really cool. Okay, keep yeah. on going. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah, so I'm not going to get into any of the spoilers. I'm just going to talk about the couple, first couple of episodes because the triangulation is crazy. Crazy. Louise goes to work ne- the next day and she actually works as a staff person in a psychiatrist's office. Ooh. And there's a new psychiatrist coming on board that she is going to be the main staff person for. I and wonder who it is. It is. Ooh, yeah. Dun, dun, dun. It is. The guy she kissed the night before. What? But she sees him with his wife talking to the head psychiatrist in the head psychiatrist's office. Feels super embarrassed. Mm. And so kind of like hides and actually doesn't come in until like a day later, takes a day off and then comes in and like surprised, like, let's just pretend nothing happened. Blah, 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 blah. Well, so... On her day off, she's walking and she bumps into somebody (gasps) and she recognizes it as the psychiatrist's wife. What? And guess what happens? The psychiatrist's wife says, hey, do you want to go get some coffee? And guess who starts starts to become friends, right? So we have this one triangle going, right? Where because as you watch the psychiatrist and his wife, are not getting along oh. well at all. They don't like each other. The wife very much pursues him and he very much withdraws, but you'll have to figure out why that is later. <gasps> so then another overlapping triangle. Oh my gosh. Louise's ex-husband tells their son that the ex-husband and the ex-husband's girlfriend are going to go to France for a month and he should come. The son should the son, come. The son should come. And so, of course, the son gets excited, but then it automatically creates a triangle in which the son wants to go to France. And the mom's like, you can't take him for a month. I'm going to be all by myself. Well, because the son's so excited, Louise acquiesces. Mm. Son goes to, to France with his dad for a month. So because she wants to spend the day with him before he leaves, Louisa calls in sick. And the psychiatrist comes to check on her <gasps> and just make sure she's what? feeling okay. And then guess what happens? What? Do they make out? Oh, they do a little bit more than make Ooh. out. So children, cover your ears. <laughs> it's not Bridgerton levels. It's not Bridgerton <laughs> levels, but. Um, Very few things are Bridgerton level. And then the next day goes to the gym with a psychiatrist's wife. And talks about being a friend, right? So it really shows how all this stress can lead to reactive decisions, right? That's one of the things we know about triangles, right? Triangles are used to bind anxiety. In other words, when I'm stressed out, I'm going to turn to somebody. And if I'm stressed out because of them and there's a conflict, I'm going to turn to somebody else to try to deal with that anxiety. But when I do that, sometimes I make poor reactive decisions that aren't in line with my long-term goals. 
And so what I love about Behind Her Eyes is it shows that how all of these triangles and the reactivity within the triangles lead to really poor decisions and really, really interesting problems. We'll, we'll leave it at that. So oh my. I think it's important to recognize that when all the triangles that exist in your life and times when they lead you to be reactive, right? Because in those times, it's often that you're not always going to make the best decision, even though in that moment, in that triangle, it's going to feel like, hey, this is what I should be doing. This is what I want to do. This will help me deal with this stress, this anxiety I'm feeling. Behind her eyes, watch it. Highly recommend. So good. So interesting. As Ted Lasso says on a show that I was hoping you might bring here today, but you still did not. (laughs) A love triangle is life's most complicated shape. Mm. Oh. No, Sarah, I believe there's still one more episode left in this season. I've got my fingers crossed. It'd be the first pop culture I could relate to all Uh, year. (laughs) I'm just saying, maybe keep your ear to the ground. (laughs) I don't know (laughs) I like it now we're going to move to our academic deep dive segment and talk about a new paper titled you aren't as close to my family as you think discordant perceptions about in-laws and risk of divorce written by Dr. Catherine Fiore at Adelphi University, Dr. Amy Rauer at UT Knoxville, what? Dr. Kira Burdett at University of Michigan and Dr. Edna Brown at UConn and Dr. Carrie Orbuck at Oakland University. Recently published in the journal Research in Human Development, this study is an area many listeners have actually asked us to discuss in more depth. In-laws. Yes, yes. (laughs) In-laws can be quite the trippy, trippy, trippy and tricky topic for new and not so new couples. And y'all have been hoping we'd more light on these relationships for quite some time. We listened. Finally, end of almost end of season two. Finally (laughs) got there. If you're someone who's experienced difficulty navigating in-laws, you are certainly not alone. Research shows that relationships with in-laws are frequently an area of conflict in marriage. And when these relationships are rough, it can be a real problem for couples. This is especially true for women who these authors point out are not only more likely to be connected to their own family and lean on them for support, but also are more likely to have negative relationships with their in-laws than men are. So while in-law relationships are positive and supportive, can be wonderful, important resources, couples that lean more towards one spouse's family than the other, or maybe that lean away from one set of parents, could be headed for trouble. Interestingly, these authors explore relationships with in-laws from the perspective of whether spouses agree about how close they are to each other's family. They explain that here termed concordance in couples likely have similar values and beliefs, similar personalities, or even similar perceptions about the quality of their marriage is usually associated with having happier, healthier, 
longer lasting relationships. So when it comes to managing relationships to in-laws, the author proposes that it may be especially helpful to be on the same page with your partner. So Sarah, how did they test this similarity on in-laws idea, concordance on in-laws idea? Yep. So they hypothesized that the more dissimilar partners were mm-hmm. or the more discordant they were in a few different ways. Of, I was well, just thinking like, what is the opposite of concordance? Of concordance. Obviously. Thankfully, thank, thank you for the win. Jeez Louise. My brain was like, <laughs> Thankfully, the authors, the authors <laughs> told us they used the word discordance. I didn't come up with that. <laughs> discordance in these four different areas that they assess about in-laws. And that is disagreement on perceptions of balance of time spent with each other's families. Oh, interesting. Which family is the primary source of support? Closeness with each other's families. Whether disagreement in those areas will be linked to the increased risk of divorce 16 years later. Also, whether there would be a cumulative effect of discordance on Mm -hmm. divorce. So the more things we disagree about, is that linked to greater likelihood of divorce? So their sample was from the early years of marriage project, which was a longitudinal panel study that started in 1986 of 373 black and white couples, these were same race couples, about 50-50, not quite, but who applied for marriage licenses for their first marriage in Wayne County, Michigan. They were followed over the first 16 years of their marriage. So what they explained is that at baseline at year one, then year three, year seven, and year 16, these participants did face-to-face interviews during which they were asked about whether they divorced and when. And Mm. so this study that we're going to talk about used 355 couples that had reported about that divorce data, which is almost all of them. That's very little missing information. Yeah. At baseline, husbands were on average about 26 and a half years old, wives 24 years old. They had both an average years of education of 13 and their average income was about $31,000 annually. So there was some spread there as there always is with income that was average. That's just to give you some basics about who this, who this group of couples is. And then I'm going to walk through. So that's an the, average of 31,000 in 1986. 86. Those right. aren't today's dollars. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. I was already born. Uh, okay. And so, um, <laughs> so. So these could be your is, parents is what right. I'm hearing you say. Right. That's what I was saying. My parents were married in 82. So not that far off from when these couples started being sampled, which is sort of interesting. So I'm going to walk through the actual questions that they asked them in 1986 mm. so that our listeners can play along with these questions and see how they would answer and then potentially ask your partner the same questions and see how they would answer. And the answers might be important, but really remember these researchers are thinking about whether you agree or disagree Disagree. over and above what your actual answers are. The concordance being important. Right. I'm going to write down my answers as you ask these questions. I'm going to play along and maybe I'll report back next time what Chelsea and I do. So if you need to pause, get a paper and pencil. Paper, that's right. Yep. And next week we might find out if Jacob and Chelsea are headed to divorce or not. (laughs) Stay tuned. They're not. They're not. That's not what these researchers would not say this. They did not set up this study like a game. I was playing it like a game. Just to be clear, these researchers are world class. I just thought these, (laughs) the study was so much fun. I was literally playing along in my head. So the first area they ask about is time spent with each other's family. So the question is, 
as a couple, would you say you spend more time with your own family, more time with your spouse's family, or about the same amount of time with both or no time with either? Yes. So they, of course, captured the answers, but then they categorized the couples and whether they agreed or disagreed on the variable. So examples of how they could have agreed or disagreed was that they could have agreed, for example, that it was very wife focused. They both could have Mm. said, we spend more time with her family. They also could have disagreed on which spouse's family they spent more time with. Or another example would be the wife says it's really balanced amount of time, but the husband says, no, we're spending more time with her people. So only 58% of their sample agreed on who they spent the most time with, really? which is not a lot, um, which is where I first started getting interested in, huh, I wonder what, what <laughs> my partner would say, but also what my friends might say and the listeners who asked us to talk about in-laws, what they might say. Mm. And so anyways, the second area would be about which family you call on for advice or help. The question being, As a couple, whose family would you call on for advice or help if you needed it? Your own family, your spouse's family, each family about equally, or neither family? And in this area, only 42% agreed. If they agreed, they most often agreed that it was balanced, but most of them did not agree. So then they asked about closeness to husband's families and closeness to wife's families. So these are the last two of the four areas. First question being, how close do you think your spouse feels to your family? How close do you feel to your spouse's family? So here they could have a few different categories, right? Based on what you feel and also what you think your spouse feels, but then Mm -hmm. what your spouse feels and what your spouse thinks you feel, right? So for example, both spouses could agree that the wife is not close to the husband's family or the wife could think that the husband's not close to her family, but he thinks he's close. So in these two areas there was a lot more agreement. So 86% agreed on the wife's closeness to the husband's family. 84% agreed on the husband's closeness to the wife's family, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And so you now have your answers. You can also pause and get your spouse's answers before I reveal the results. What was the response categories for three and four? Was it a Likert scale? For, oh, for how, like for each item you mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like, so number one, like, was it my own, your own? Or, you know, like all those, but what three and four, how do I rate this? Cause I got to make sure I, Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you are. like, how do if I rate like properly, very close, close, not close. Like what are, my, what are my response categories? Playing along here. Oh my gosh. Okay. 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 <laughs> I have to look up. Okay. So closest on husbands and wives, families for Jacob and for anybody else who's really taken Thank this you. so seriously on a scale from told one us to four, one, not at all close to four, very close. Okay. That okay. is it. Okay. Okay. So this okay. is interesting because it's like emotionally close. Yeah. That's yeah. It, it's interesting that that one, it has more agreement than like the more, yes, func- right. And the more functional support, which is, you would yeah, think is more tangible elements. Yeah. Yes, I agree. You could probably, it'd be easier to maybe actually calculate how right. many hours you spent. Yeah, I agree. So they controlled for these indicators themselves, meaning, as I said earlier, the actual ratings on how much time you spent with families, they controlled for it because they were interested in the concordance piece, whether you agree. They also controlled for race, income, education, in-laws, marital status in in these partners' own youth, so whether they were in married families, families that stayed married, and whether they had a kid before marriage. So some of these other variables that we know may impact the long-term, quote, success of the relationship. Right. So what they found was 
that only 22% of couples agreed on all four variables. So if you're at home playing along and you found an area you didn't agree, you are in the majority. 11% disagreed on three or four. That's rough. (laughs) That's a lot. That's that's a lot. Where they tested whether or not these things predicted divorce, looking at the, um, the time to divorce across 16 years. So what they found was that the time spent with families who, who they called on for advice or help, mm-hmm. and the closeness of the wife to the husband's family. If they disagreed in these areas, it was not associated with divorce. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Leaving only one category, <gasps> which is... Dun, dun, dun. So much suspense. Which, I love this. I mean, obviously, which, it's not much suspense because there's only one left, but go on. Well, yes, if you're listening closely. So couples who agreed about the husband's closeness to the wife's family were significantly less likely to divorce across 16 years. The risk of divorce in this area by that disagreement, by that discordance was driven by couples where the wife thinks the husband is not close to her family, but he thinks he is. I know, that's kind of rough. (laughs) Of those 36 couples at baseline, 26 of them divorced. It's wow. 72% divorce rate. Wow. And yeah. But if they're looking at discordance, right, then you also have to think about the opposite category or the opposite disagreement where the right. wife thinks the husband is close, but he's like, I don't, I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> that, the, rate of divorce for, the rate of divorce for discordance in that area, similar to the overall sample. Wow. It is only if he thinks he's close to her people and she's like, you are not close to my family. So it's very interesting. Now they didn't assess conflict per se. So they assessed closeness. They didn't assess conflict, right? So it might not be so much that time spent together or whether or not you ask them for help is, is really an issue and could impact your marriage. It could be that whether the time you spend together is like really hostile or like your in-laws are criticizing you all the time. Right. Or if they, you go to them for help and they offer support, but it's, you know, it comes with strings or something sort of toxic. Right. So it could be other kinds of qualities of the relationship and they didn't assess conflict per se. So that's an interesting kind of caveat, I think. But in general, what is interesting is that many, many couples in their sample disagreed about who to spend time with or who to ask for help. That wasn't associated with divorce far fewer people agreed on whose family they're close to. And when they disagreed, that was the problem, right? Right. So in general, people agree how we're close to our in-laws, but the people for whom there was a disagreement, that's where it actually posed a possible issue for these relationships. Interesting. Yeah. And it wasn't, remember, so they controlled for the actual responses to these items, and it w- those did not predict divorce. So it wasn't whether husbands or wives, their own reports of their connections oh. to families, pr- those did not predict the likelihood of divorce. So it wasn't necessarily the quality of those relationships with in-laws, but whether we agree on the quality. Oh, oh very Specifically for wives and family. Yeah, really important whether or not he is close, but also important whether they agree that he's close. It's also kind of interesting if you think about it, it, it's fairly challenging. I'm sure some listeners can agree. It's fairly challenging to think about how we can shift relationships with our own family of origin, but more challenging to think about how to do that with our in-laws, right? It's, it's 
kind of challenging to think about if there's something kind of problematic or tricky in those relationships, how do I, as a sort of outsider, but like kind of bringing families together piece, how do I shift that if that's conflictual, right? right? But it it's not as challenging if you think about, is it something that within the couple, we can merely kind of come into alignment about how we feel, that might be a little bit easier to shift in terms of making that a more overt conversation about how do we want to connect with your family? And when I say your family, I I mean the wife's family, (laughs) at least least, least according to this research. That's That's right. So I think, I just think it's a really very cool piece of research that it's really interesting. I agree. Yeah, really cool. Very, very fascinating. And I love that it does kind of give us something tangible that we can try and and fix. And let us know how you guys did on this quiz. I'm so, so fascinated by what you guys think. Oh, I'll report I'll report my answers next week if if we're congruent. Yeah, no skipping to the one category just because you know what the results said. All four. You got to do all four. No cheating. <laughs> Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear about relationship advice from our parents, family, friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on the social medias, blogs, and all these numerous top 10 lists. But a lot of it just isn't actually good for our relationships. So this is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard some advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on the Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at attachpodcast or just go to attachpodcast.com and send us a message from there. While you're at it on the World Wide Web, please rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or YouTube. And of course, as always, share it with your loved ones. You know that they want to hear this. So often in this advice section, especially when it comes to parenting, we see a lot about what we're doing wrong as parents, advice about what we're doing wrong or how to avoid things. But as a parent and as parents, actually, I think that the vast majority of what we do is actually right. We're doing the right thing. So I wanted to take today and talk about signs that might indicate that you are parenting Right. And also just some in the mood for some really positive, good juju in the world. So the article today comes from Motherly by Nadine Vanderlinden titled Seven Signs You Are Parenting Right. Are you guys here for it? You guys ready for it? Bring it on. All right. First, your child displays a range of emotions in front of you. Sometimes the timing of your child's big emotions is difficult. We may not wish to see as much of the big emotions as we do, but your child's ability to express anger, sadness, or fear in front of you is a good sign that he or she feels emotionally safe with you. Good or bad advice about good parenting, your child displays a range of emotions in front of you. So I am going to say good advice. I think that um, 
kids should feel safe in front of their parents being able to express a range of emotions, right? It, you know, kids should have parents who allow them to express how they feel and parents who help them understand and experience those emotions, right? Kids are learning how to, to emotionally regulate themselves. And that takes time as adults, we don't do it well, and we still need other people to help us sometimes. So I think it's key that, you know, if your kids are showing all these big emotions, it means that in part, that's part of that exploration, the exploration of who they are on the inside and what this feels and what this means. So great advice. Great advice. Woods. Yes, I would agree. Good advice. I think that I agree with what Jacob is describing in terms of this being a really normal part of development. Also, I think we've talked about this before, but something I use with my own kid is just to kind of remind myself, also her and also anybody around her who sometimes might get anxious (laughs) about lots of big emotions. That emotions are temporary. And that's a really helpful thing for adults to remember too about their own feelings that that we are not our emotions. Our emotions mm-hmm. are valid and important and we have to learn what they are. And the only way to learn how to cope with them and what kind of information they give us is by going through them, especially when you're young and little. I think the only caveat would be that there are some ways to express emotion that are not healthy, that we can be angry and frustrated and upset, but we can't throw things and we can't hit people and we can't bite our sister in the lava, but sister, but all all kinds of emotions are valid and worthwhile. Absolutely. So good advice all around. Next up, your child comes to you when hurt or facing a problem. I know that a parent is doing a good, awesome job when their child comes to them as a first port of call for their problems. This means you have provided a secure base that your child can return to when they need help. Good or bad advice about good parenting? I'm gonna say generally good advice depending on the developmental level of the child, right? If you have a teenager, you're not gonna be the first port and that doesn't mean you're a bad, Mm. like you're a bad parent right? Like teenagers developmentally appropriate for them to potentially go to friends, romantic interests, whatever it might be before they come to parents. And that's not a bad sign of parenting. I do think when you're talking about younger kids, you know, and as kids grow up, it's okay if they don't always come to you to solve those problems. It shows they're engaging in multiple relationships, which I actually think is also a good marker of you're doing something well as a parent. So Generally good advice, just don't expect your teenagers to come to you all the time when they have a problem. That's just not what, not what they're going to be doing. So good advice, bad advice, but, you know, considering developmental appropriateness. Woods? Yeah, I agree. Good advice. I think this is every parent's hope and dream, right? That you create this relationship that is secure enough that they're going to come to you in the future and let you know when something isn't right. Maybe that's a really broad overgeneralization and it's just my hope and dream, but, um, (laughs) uh, but I think um, she, she references that you've created a secure base that's attachment language. So I feel like here at attached, we should probably make sure we explain what that means. And that is where you create a relationship with your child that has enough safety that they can go out and experience the world, but also that they can return and get that help from you when they need it. I would also say as an additional caveat to Jacobs, also don't wait for them to come to you. 
that you can intentionally check in with your kids at all developmental stages about how they're doing, whether they need any support, especially if you observe something that makes you concerned or worried. Um, I think a lot of times, especially as kids get older, families can get stuck in these awkward dances where parents maybe kind of want to ask, but they're not sure how far to push, but they're really worried about their kid. And the kid is on the other side, maybe wanting to talk about it, but feeling awkward and uncomfortable. And you can hear both parties of these families kind of doing this awkward dance around each other where um, as a parent, feel free to kind of ask. You don't need to wait for them to come to you. Yeah. And if they're not ready to tell you, then that's okay too. And having the capacity as a parent to emotionally regulate yeah, yourself that's a good point. during yeah, that that's a good point. Is, is a really important thing. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about stories I've heard about people coming out to their parents mm-hmm. and their parents knew for a while, mm-hmm. but their child just wasn't ready to come out. So sometimes pushing can um, create more distance that pursuer, a uh, distant pursuer, pursuer distancer. That's not it. Pursue withdrawal. Pursue withdrawal. There we go. Thank you. So just being mindful of parents' capacity to regulate their own distance during that is, is important. Good advice overall that your children come to you when hurt or facing a problem. I think I would also add to that, that it's particularly a sign of good parenting when a child comes to you when they're hurt, when you're the one that hurt their feelings too, right? So if you accidentally say something or do something as a parent that hurt your children's feelings, which is bound to happen, that happens, that's okay. Their capacity to come and trust that they can share that with you, I think is an added really great sign that you are doing well as a parent when they can have those types of hard conversations with you. Next up, your child can discuss thoughts and feelings without fearing your reaction. I think this kind of builds on accidentally on what we are just referring to. This is a positive sign of accepting open and flexible parent-child relationships. Some parents unwittingly restrict communication with their child through their behavior, such as overreacting to thoughts or feelings they don't like, or those that question their behavior as a parent. So good or bad advice, your children can discuss thoughts and feelings without fearing your reaction. So I think for the most part, good advice, right? Like you want your kids to be able to come to you and show how you're, how they feel. Right. And I, and I think too, like, it's okay for you to have big reactions as a parent, as long as you're like expressing those appropriately. Right. Right. Like, you you know, I think that trying to say like, okay, I I don't want the message to come across as be a stoic parent. Like, no, I don't have any feelings. Right. That's not going to facilitate this type of conversation. So showing your own emotions, I think, is a good thing. But showing them in a way that is a response that is not harmful, that is not shaming, that is not hurtful is important. Right. So I don't think parents can't or don't have large emotional reactions. I have an eight month old and I have large emotional reactions (laughs) to him sometimes. And I, and I think that those are going to be a part of this process. So you want to create the safe space, but also don't turn yourself into a robot, I guess is what I'm saying. And I don't think that's the advice that that she's writing about, but I think it could be interpreted that way. So good advice with that caveat. Good advice with the caveat of don't become a robot. What's 
Yeah, I agree. I think there is, and research would suggest that there is value in parents sharing their own emotions and not making that a really veiled response. But I agree with Jacob that sharing about those in a way that's appropriate and not really critical and not dismissive and not rejecting means that you get to share that you're angry or upset or disappointed or worried, or that you need a break to come think about what they've shared and come back to that conversation and handling those in ways where you're kind of monitoring and and your own reactivity and soothing that as much as possible while still being transparent about your emotional reaction is only a fabulous way to, to model how to do that for your kids so that they have the ability to do that themselves. Now, that being said, I don't think that that takes all the fear away from kids coming to their parents with stuff that they've done wrong or that they're scared about or et cetera, that that fear can still exist. I think they're pursuing those conversations, even if they're nervous about it is really, really important. But I think the distinction is, are they afraid that you're going to criticize them, reject them, push them away, judge them, be mad at them in a way that they can't recover we right. can't repair is really kind of the problematic flag there. So good advice. I think what I would add to that is one of these situations where children are processing big emotions, maybe something scared them, maybe something made them nervous and they want to talk about it. The, the fear of the parent making that situation about them, it would be inappropriate them being the parent. So, oh, well, you're talking about this. I'm, I'm experiencing these emotions. While those, it's good to experience those things, we don't want to flip it all the way to the parent processing their own emotions in front of the child and putting the burden on the child that they're already feeling these really big emotions mm-hmm. to also try and handle the parents. Emotions. Sure, sure, sure. So that's a concern with what I hear that you got when you guys are talking about the parent's are allowed, of course, to have emotional reactions, but let's not make it about the parent if the child is going through something and trying to process something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. good point. The other thing too is this is hard. Like <laughs> if you don't handle this situation perfectly, trying to work through these processing, these big feelings and events or something that happened to your child and you do something reactive, you can apologize after and say, you know what? I really shouldn't have done that. I'm really sorry I got mad at you for that. That wasn't fair for me. Can we try again doing this? And, you know, once, if those patterns are kind of ingrained, it's hard to do that when they're older. But if you can do it in a developmentally appropriate way and start when the child is very young, you're also modeling how to not be perfect and how to apologize afterwards. So that I think are some things that I would add to um, you guys' wonderful feedback um, about good advice. So next up, your feedback is not critical or labeling. Awesome parents give non-critical feedback about behavior and avoid labels such as bad, naughty, greedy, and lazy. If your child eats all of the chocolate biscuits or cookies, this is clearly a British thing, (laughs) before anyone else has a chance to share them. An awesome parent focuses on the behavior. You ate all of the biscuits without sharing. It is important in our home that you share with your siblings. How do you think you could make this up for the family? This is very different from saying, you greedy little girl, go to your room. Good or bad advice? I think this is good advice. I do have a caveat though, too, because I I think sometimes on Instagram, 
you can see all of these people that are going to post like things you should never say to your child. Right. And I agree criticism and labeling and shaming shouldn't be involved in parenting, but I also don't think that policing your words to such an extent is going to be helpful. Right. Like I, I sometimes worry that, you know, like if parents are inundated with all the things they shouldn't say, they're not going to have any vocabulary and avoiding shaming and blaming and labeling are important. And also knowing that you can repair those relationships when you make a mistake. So if you're so worried that you might say the wrong thing, that you just don't say anything, that's bad advice. So Mm. again, I don't think she's going this realm because I think focusing on criticism, on labeling a, a, a person's character or who they are based on their behavior is problematic, especially for kids. But I do think that it's important too to know that parents are gonna mess up. And part of that showing that good parenting is only when you make the mistakes and talking about it. So overall, good advice. Woods? Yeah, I think good advice. I think that this is probably a a true quality in maybe all relationships, Mm -hmm. that giving feedback that is behavior specific rather than person specific and about them or their character is really the most effective way to teach and also the best way to create environments of psychological safety. So this is absolutely true with kids. This is also true even in workplaces when bosses or team leaders give feedback that it really should be about behavior, which is easily shifted versus the core of who a person is or labeling them, which is not as easily shifted and is experienced as really unsafe and threatening. Yeah. I, I would I would venture to say this is probably the hallmark of good advice for good parenting, not name calling your children. I mean, I think sure. it's like key, like yeah. you're modeling good behavior. You're not engaging in uh, abusive verbal attacks and especially around like food. You're not giving children complexes oh. of eating things. So yeah, a hundred percent good advice. <laughs> Don't call your kids names or anybody else. Uh, it's probably re- real good. You heard real it good. here first. <laughs> <laughs> real good all around advice. Next up, you encourage your child to pursue interests and talents. Pursuing interests and talents help children feel a sense of mastery and achievement. It can positively engage children through the teen and young adult years, teaching persistence and helping protect against risk-taking behavior. It is a wonderful thing to excel at something you love. Good or bad advice? I think my brain is always going to these extreme places through this because the algorithm on my Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, like it's like geared at new parents. So I'm seeing all these parent things that are just like, you know, kind of, we've heard the the phrase of like tiger parenting and all that stuff. And I don't think that's what she's saying, but I almost yeah, feel it's like not. it's probably my own anxiety, like <laughs> is seeing all of this and then having yeah. to be like, that's not what I want. This is here, but I have to like, make sure that, that I know, maybe I'm saying more to myself, but like, this is good <laughs> advice. I think encouraging kids, supporting kids to pursue their interests and activities and making sure it's their interests and activities and not yours, Right. If you are pushing your kid to do something that you think they want to do, or you end up wanting to them to do it more than you do, I think that's a good check. Providing support, showing them the importance of being a part of a team, following through with your commitments, all are important. And also don't be the parent that is just screaming on the sidelines. I have literally been to soccer games where I thought mm-hmm. parents were going to fight in the middle of the field. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so... 
So again, I feel like I'm just inundated with like all this like hyper anxiety parenting stuff right now, which I think there's a lot out there, which this isn't that advice, but make sure you don't let the pendulum swing to being that parent who's going to fight somebody. Right. (laughs) Another good point of advice, like don't call people names and don't fight other parents. Research says... I don't know if there's any research about fighting other parents on the <laughs> sideline, but surely we can think of something. But right, the, the term is encourage here, not demand. So I would I would imagine that uh, this per- this person is not intending what you're saying. So good advice, Woods. Yeah, <laughs> good advice. And also, we're going to have to get that cross stitch back out. <laughs> I started by saying that, well, maybe this isn't quite the fit. Um, yeah, I think it's important. It sounds like from the perspective of not trying to create mini-me's, trying to help foster children's independence and success through what they take an interest in. But they, I think you use the term or rather the, the author used the term early on, Patricia, I think you used the word mastery. I think it's a really beautiful reason that research yeah. has tons of evidence to support that when people feel like they have the ability to have control and success in their own environment, and that is of their creating, that has plenty of psychological benefits that helps raise healthy humans. So I yeah. think that's good advice. Absolutely. And, and the long-term impacts of having... A- pursuing your interest and talent, but being persistent about that is a skill. Mm. And it's not always yeah. easy. Like encouraging this in, in children is not always easy. So for example, my, my seven-year-old is taking piano lessons and she enjoys it, especially the, the lesson itself. She enjoys, she likes her teacher. She feels so proud of herself when she's done the piece well, or I mean, piece, I mean, it's like, you know, twinkle twinkle little star well and her teacher praises her and but guess what the daily practices are not always the easiest sometimes we don't do them daily because we're just too tired to to do it but teaching your child also that you know these these talents don't just like come out of thin air like there is some practice involved and then look you've mastered this like you've done a good job and that kind of cycle of encouraging talents and encouraging interests I think is more challenging than what they lead you to believe it's like oh my gosh you are good at piano it's just a natural thing excelling yeah but there are also other things that my seven-year-old does like she does horseback riding lessons that she really enjoys and she can't practice the horseback riding lessons because we don't have a horse you know they're they're different different things but I also like I guess the caveat to this is it it's not always as like in practice as easy to encourage this as they're making it sound like and trying to kind of find that line between what Jacob is saying is like don't let yourself become a tiger parent, but also this is not just like saying, oh yes, go forth and do piano is not something that just happens with pure inborn talent. It takes persistent and ta- persistence and practice, but that's also how you develop these sense of mastery, achievement, teaching persistence and helping protect against risk-taking behavior mm-hmm. are, are wrapped in that as well. All right. So last, but certainly not least, 
You create boundaries on behavior to keep your child safe. Awesome parents guide their child's behavior by setting considered boundaries and limits. Children without limits and boundaries often end up in a lot of trouble or are lost. Boundaries help children feel loved and valued, even if they don't like the boundaries some of the times. Some examples of helpful limits include bedtime routine, respectful language towards family members, and not permitting teens to attend parties where alcohol is supplied, for example. Good or bad advice? Great advice. I think we're fans of boundaries on the Attached podcast. And just because kids are upset at the boundaries doesn't mean that they're bad boundaries. Right. Sure. Boundaries need to change and be flexible as kids grow up. But Mm -hmm. sometimes we learn about that flexibility when there is that tension around the boundary, right? And sometimes you need to hold that boundary for the safety of the child. And sometimes it's a point where there needs to be flexibility, but kids thrive with boundaries. They need them. And that's that. I don't know. I almost feel like that's the essence of everything we're talking about, right? right? Like the essence of parenting is really just to kind of provide this the safe place to be in. And then right. as that grows, it, ex, you know, like as the child grows, that expands and, ex, and so great advice. Yeah. I would say the, the, the two big takeaways are provide boundaries and don't name call. There's a third, there's a third, don't fight other parents. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. That's key. I think uh, it's the title of the episode. Actually, it's going to be the title. <laughs> Uh, so the takeaway on how to be a good parent at boundaries, don't call your kids names and don't fight over their parents. Especially your (laughs) in-laws. Oh my goodness. What's good or bad advice? I think it's beautiful, totally crystal clear, super powerful, important advice. I also think you could expand this idea of kind of setting boundaries and helping create these safe spaces for kids to learn and grow by encouraging children to set their own boundaries. That that is part of this, what you are comfortable with and learning about consent and when and where you want your sibling to be in your bedroom and where what you're comfortable with in terms of personal yeah. space at school. And there's lots of ways to expand this so that kids also learn how to set boundaries to help keep themselves safe. And I I love this. It's a beautifully simple way to say boundaries are super important. Boundaries are super important. Fantastic advice. So thanks for listening to Attached. Remember to call us, email us, or get at us on all of those social medias about relationship advice you've received that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.